Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast, Season 2. Please stay tuned after the episode for some updates. As always, this is a true crime podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode covers a little of everything, so please do use your best judgment. This episode is intended for mature audiences. There are a lot of reasons people are interested in real true crime stories. For one thing, it's been going on since the beginning of crime, which would be the beginning of time. There are many, way too many, examples of people traveling to scenes of horrific crimes to gather and gawk. This goes far back in history. One really huge example of this happening was at the scene of Bell Guinness's farm. So many people showed up that families set up picnic blankets and watched as newly found buried bodies were dug up or hauled away. These same people tried to take pieces of wood from the house, clothing, whatever they could grab for souvenirs. I was just reading about another one of these cases from the early 1800s, where people were reaching into the broken windows of a murder house to take trinkets or anything they could get a hold of until the police were alerted and realized they had to set up security to keep the ghouls away. And, well, you might have seen the latest Bonnie and Clyde movie, where people in a town were running up to the car that was being towed with Bonnie and Clyde's bullet-riddled bodies in it, and they were grabbing pieces of Bonnie's hair, tearing at other parts of her and Clyde's bodies to try and get a souvenir. That really happened. It's disgusting, but we'll get into more of that on a later episode. The other interests in true crime is the mystery, the who, why, where, and how, solving the mystery of these. And then there is the knowledge that comes with all of that. There are things that can be learned from it. True crime, following true crime, watching the bad things on the news can be important. It can help. It can help you and others in your life. When I was a teenager and driving my own car for the first time, I wasn't watching the news, and we didn't have smartphones or social media then. My family members told me about how bad men were deliberately hitting women's cars with their cars to get them to pull over, and some women were raped or killed. The idea being they would pull over to see the damage on the car to exchange insurance information, etc. The whole don't stop, drive to the police station thing started then, at least as far as I know. People who cared were telling young people not to stop in these situations. Drive to somewhere safe, a police station if possible. When I was just 18 or 19, I was driving to the airport to pick up my then boyfriend. It was a sunny day and my windows were half rolled down. A carload of young men, at least three or four, were pulling up in the lane beside me and keeping pace with my car. They were pointing at the front right tire and saying something was wrong with it. I knew the car was driving fine and I didn't feel anything was wrong. Maybe my hubcap fell off. I was close to the airport, in a major city, and I wasn't going to stop and look for a cheap hubcap that had possibly fell off my beater of a car That was just what got me back and forth to work. So I thought no more of it. 
Then they reappeared by my right side again and were yelling to me that I needed to pull over and pointing to my tire. I decided then I wasn't pulling over and if there was something wrong with my tire, it could stay wrong until I got to the airport. In the end, there wasn't anything wrong with my car or tire and no reason that I needed to pull over. Some friends at the time thought they were just trying to hit on me to get me to stop and give them my number. Maybe. Or maybe it was for something worse. My mind works that way and I don't care who knows it or who wants to poke fun at me for it. I put wooden dowels in the windows of the first floor of my house. I have always locked the doors in my car immediately upon getting in. I keep my doors locked. Seriously. If I hear one more true crime show go into a small town where they didn't lock the doors until this horrible thing happened, well, no shit. Apparently, they never read In Cold Blood. That poor family didn't think they had to lock their doors in 1959 farmland Kansas either. That case properly broke my heart. And say what you want about Truman, his writing was excellent. He made you understand the tragedy in the tragedy of a case that didn't have to happen. So you can learn things from true crime. There are a lot of women that listen to their intuition, and we need to. I have a quote about this from Anne Rule, who was one of the first go-tos for true crime books. To me, she is the OG. Some of you may know that Anne personally knew Ted Bundy. They worked together on a suicide hotline. Anne was already a true crime writer then, publishing in True Detective magazines. She had also been a police officer before. She had no idea Ted Bundy was a danger. She liked him. Everyone did say he was personable. He had even joked to Anne one time about walking her out to her car to be safe because of the dangerous guy the newspapers were talking about. When he was arrested, she didn't believe they had the right guy at first. She kept in touch with him while he was in jail. And it wasn't until Florida, when he was caught there, that she was sure he was the sadistic killer they said he was. Anne wrote about Ted, but she also wrote about many, many other cases. The garden variety psychos who killed their wives or husbands, or entire families. The stalker obsessive killers and more. If you haven't read one of Anne Rule's books, I recommend getting one of them that has the main title and then says, and other stories. It's basically a full book, true crime story, and then some short true crime stories as well. All are usually fascinating. She always digs in deep as possible with background on victims as well as perpetrators. Sadly, Anne has passed away but she was still putting out books into her 80s. Now again, OG. So here is the quote, if you haven't read it already, on my social media from Anne Rule. As I write these recollections of women who survived, I hope my readers are taking careful note of why they did. They screamed. They fought. They slammed doors in a stranger's face. They ran. They doubted glib stories. They spotted flaws in those stories. They were lucky enough to have someone step up and protect them. Anne Rule, The Stranger Beside Me, 
1980. Women listening to their intuition, the warnings they feel, we all need to pay attention. In Austin, Texas, 2001, there were good examples of this. One real estate agent described the man as being dressed as if his clothes were new, as in right out of the packaging, a shirt that still had the lines in it from being in a folded plastic shirt bag. She felt nervous about him. He kept trying to get her to walk ahead of him, to show him the rooms upstairs, and he wanted her to go up before him. Each agent or woman who encountered him knew him under a different fake name. This prospective buyer would come to the door when women were home alone. He would ask to look at the house, said he was paying cash, that he had just sold a home and was in a hurry to get a new one in the area. Once inside, he would try to get the woman to walk ahead of him into bedrooms or ahead of him up the stairs. Some of these women got the intuitive feeling that something was wrong, off, about this guy, and that saved them from being attacked. One of the women was a real estate agent, and the house that she was showing to the prospective buyer was vacant. She said the man had a sort of tick, where he would keep cracking and popping his neck, and he was breathing odd. She had done her due diligence. She had asked if he was pre-qualified. He told her he was paying cash and that he had just sold another property. There was a detached garage on the property that this real estate agent was showing him. The buyer really wanted to see inside the garage and he told her. It was separate from the house. She told him it was just an empty garage, but he said he really wanted to see inside it. The way that he spoke just made her feel odd. The door to the garage was locked, and when she took the ring of keys out to try and get it to open, he was standing closely behind her. She felt so nervous that she couldn't get the key to work. She blurted out that the keys were not working, and she ran past him and quickly jumped into her car and locked the doors. She immediately took off. She didn't care if she was being rude or that maybe she was wrong about him. Something about him scared her. And once she got home and was safe, she cried. She reported it, but the police couldn't do anything. He hadn't touched her or even threatened her. Another woman was spooked when she was showing her house to him. At one point, she noticed him looking very oddly at her. She got out of the room they were in, and he left. She did notice, though, that he had picked up one of the real estate agent's brochures and then put it back down on the table. After he left, she had picked up that brochure and put it in the back of the stack. She didn't think about this again until much later. November 15, 2001, Diane Hollick was found strangled in her bedroom. There were restraint marks indicating she had been tied up, as well as ligature marks. Diane's engagement ring, worth around 18000 was missing. There was no sign of sexual assault. This did bring her fiancé to suspicion as there were reports that everything was not perfect with their relationship. Friends brought him up and said that there was some trouble they had heard about and that Diane was reconsidering her decision to marry him. She had also mentioned to a friend on the phone that she had a man come by earlier and had looked at the house. She told her friend he seemed very impressed with it and she was excited that she might finally sell it. The killer, whoever it was, had been very careful. 
He had cut the zip tie he had used as a restraint off of her and took it with him. Also, at the crime scene, there were no fingerprints, as if the scene had been wiped down, as not even Diane's fingerprints were found. One thing that seemed out of place was a green towel. It was thrown over a love seat. Everything else in the room and house was neat and tidy. The towel would eventually be tested for DNA. Nothing else was missing besides the engagement ring. The towel and the ring were the only things off. There were seven hairs on the towel, and they did not belong to Diane. There were no indications that Diane had been sexually assaulted and no signs of any semen at the scene. It was during the investigation of Diane Hollock's murder that the police found out about the man who was going around as a prospective buyer willing to pay cash. He had been contacting people with for sale signs in front of their homes, which Diane also had. All of the other homeowners and agents said he gave them different names. Police had a composite drawing made up, though, and published it in the newspaper. A woman called about the drawing. She told the authorities the same story they had heard before. Prospective buyer, paying cash. She told them about how uncomfortable she felt with him. She had another thing to tell them as well. She was fairly sure she had a flyer that this man had touched. They processed it for prints, but there were no prints to match it to at Diane's house. That had almost definitely been wiped clean. But they still processed it in hopes there would someday soon be a suspect to match it to. Then they got an even more helpful call. This woman said that the guy in the composite had come to her house and told her the same story. She lived in a different neighborhood, but affluent like Diane's. It was many months before. He was very insistent about coming in to see their house. She got a creepy feeling from him. She told him no. Her husband told her that if he came back to call the police or get his license plate. He did come back some months later. He was very insistent again. She told him no again. She called the police, but there was nothing they could do. He was insistent, but he had not forced himself in. He hadn't touched her or even threatened her. The other thing she did was write down his license plate number. She put it on the refrigerator. Other women had described his vehicle as a silver or pewter minivan. When they ran the license plate number the woman had provided, it came back to a minivan, pewter in color. The name was Patrick Russo. When they found Patrick Russo, they found that he was on probation. He had been in prison for kidnapping. He had tied up a woman who was alone in her office with zip ties and choked her. She did not die. He did not kill her. But it was awfully close to what happened to Diane. This was 10 years before Diane was murdered. Patrick had gone by Tony then. Tony confessed to kidnapping and was given 20 years in prison. He met and married his wife Janet while in prison and was eventually paroled. He only served six years. They also found that there was another woman who was a very young apartment manager, only 21. She took him to look at an available apartment. Tony, otherwise known as Patrick, shoved her in a closet and started to choke her. She fought back, but he got her down on the floor and had his hands around her throat. 
She said his eyes were crazy. At one point, he was pulling her high-necked sweater down so he could see her neck better. She was able to say something at that point. She told him that someone would be looking for her soon, that they knew what apartment she had gone to. He seemed to think about it, and she said his eyes changed, and he took his hands off of her. He asked her if she was okay and even apologized to her. For this crime, he had also confessed. He was convicted of misdemeanor assault and was put on probation for this. He went on to attack five other women. They all involved choking and zip ties. Police also found that Patrick Russo had subscribed to the website necrobabes.com. It was a site for erotic horror for adults, including staged photos of nude women being strangled, suffocated, and hanged. Patrick was a part-time Christian music minister at the church he went to with his wife, Janet. The hair on the green towel came back a DNA match for Patrick Anthony Russo. On February 20th, 2004, Patrick Anthony Russo, 40, part-time music minister, was convicted of capital murder. He is currently serving a life sentence in Texas. The women that encountered Patrick Russo not long before he murdered Diane were lucky. But they were also smart, and they didn't ignore their instincts, their intuition. In one case, the realtor who had literally ran from him and jumped in her car could have felt foolish later if the man she ran from had said something to the agency she worked for. But she knew something was wrong. And in a split second, she decided she'd risk the professional embarrassment and be safe. She cried at home because she knew she had been right. She had been in danger. She knew that that day. She didn't need to wait for the news reports. Sadly, no one will ever know if Diane had been close to escaping him, escaping the danger. She may too have known, have had a feeling about him, but it might have been too late and she hadn't been able to get away at that point. Diane Hollick was a beautiful, successful, professional woman, she was an IBM supervisor and only 42. In pictures and the description of her, she looks every bit in control of her own life. I have no doubt she paid attention to her instincts and she would have fought. That said, this horrible monster that did this to her had to have caught her off guard somehow. Diane was obviously smart and capable. Not only was her fiancé in love with her, but she had many close friends and family that thought the world of her. Although they wished this had not happened to Diane, they were glad the killer was found and that some justice is being served. Going back to Anne Rule, I think that one of the reasons people continue to be fascinated with Ted Bundy is that he used women's natural instincts to be helpful against them. He would use a fake cast and asked them to help him take his books back to his car or help him with something else. Women are often naturally nurturing, helpful, and empathetic, and he used these things against them. Thank you for listening to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Please click on subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. It's free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeart, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Updates 
This podcast will have some improvements coming soon. I'm going to be getting some good information and education from industry professionals who have been involved in podcasting for much longer than I. I'm excited about meeting them next week and using what I've learned to make this podcast more enjoyable for you. Also, now that we are back with season two, there will be at least two episodes out each month. Sometimes there will be a little bonus episode in there to make it three. So please do subscribe so you know when a new one comes out. You can also follow me on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook under Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Stick around for that really exciting time when I list my sources. That's next. Until next time, be safe. My sources for today's episode are twoparagraphs.com, myplainview.com, texastribune.org, cnet.com, heavy.com, myself, and there is also a show on Dateline about Diane. It's called After the Storm on Dateline.